The following episode contains references to depression, postnatal anxiety, and suicide. Please exercise discretion to decide if listening to this episode is right for you, and if you need support, call Lifeline on 13 11 14. Have you ever been at an intersection with your indicator on left and wondered what would happen if you turned right? How would that decision to change direction and take a different road impact your life? This is I'm at a Crossroad, the podcast about life's ultimate plot twists, where you will hear stories from people who have faced a life-changing decision. This episode. My journey to becoming a mother was more complicated than I expected. After the birth of her first child, Catherine Kazana was struggling. Why am I so angry at her? for not sleeping. But sometimes, asking for help can be the hardest step to take. Well, what do you pack to go into a psychiatric hospital? Catherine would make a decision that would change everything and discover things about herself that even she didn't know. Hi, my name's Dr Catherine Kazana and my crossroads occurred six years ago and it totally changed the direction of my professional, personal and parenting life. I moved to Australia when I was 25. I had finished undergraduate medical degree in the UK. I was meant to be signing up for specialty training and I wanted to do paediatrics, which was the next seven years of my life laid out before me and I said no. So I did what all good English people do when they're having a quarter-life crisis and I wanted some sun and some beach and I came to Australia to live uh, on Coogee Beach for a year. (laughs) Then when I came here, I loved emergency medicine and so I decided to stay here and do my training. The plan was I was going to complete my training and then go home. But then I met an Australian. So I met my now husband in my last term of training. We sort of were united in our care for patients. And then once I finished the term, we you know, met up outside of work. And I think in my heart, I wanted to stay in Australia once I'd been here a few years. I always had a pull home with my family but once I met my now husband I knew if that relationship continued which I hoped it would then it was going to be staying in Australia. I was one of those children that always wanted to be a mum. I played mums, I had dolls, I always loved the idea of having a child. My journey to becoming a mother was more complicated than I expected. I, like most people, I suppose, thought once you'd stopped preventing a pregnancy, (laughs) you would therefore have a pregnancy, and that didn't happen. We had six to nine months of not becoming pregnant. We had decided we would seek help early, given our ages. So we saw a specialist and ended up needing IVF. IVF is a grueling physical and emotional process that I wouldn't wish upon anyone. And like a lot of things 
to do with pregnancy and motherhood, women carry the main burden of it. No matter how great your partner is, it's it's the woman having the needles, the egg collections, the surgeries. I had three surgeries before we even started IVF and then multiple surgeries for egg collection. All the while, no one really knows what's going on for you unless you share it with certain people. So it was tough. And then, of course, in the field I worked in, you see a lot of people who had been blessed with children but were not able to take care of them. Abuse situations, parents who'd had children removed people using drugs while pregnant. They are complicated social problems and there was no judgment, but when you're trying to conceive, it's really hard and you think, why them and not me? It was probably 18 months from seeing a specialist and then all the egg collections and things, failed embryo transfers. And then our fourth embryo transfer was our little girl, Mia. The moment we found out we were pregnant was very exciting. Obviously, we were ecstatic. It was very quickly replaced by severe nausea and vomiting. It was very hard emotionally because I'd been through such a struggle to get pregnant and then I felt so physically unwell that I didn't want to be pregnant anymore. I wanted the baby, but I didn't want to feel like this. And it's hard because you feel like you should be grateful, but you also feel rubbish. My mood during my pregnancy, in retrospect, I would say I was depressed. I didn't recognise it at the time. I had been on a fairly low-dose antidepressant in the lead-up to IVF, and when I became pregnant, I decided I was coming off that without discussing it with anyone including my husband or my doctors, which is not a sensible thing to do. Probably because of that, because of nausea, and I was burnt out by this point anyway, from work, from IVF, from hormones. So I was quite low in mood in the pregnancy, particularly in in the first half, and I think that would have impacted what happened. The nausea settled around 20 weeks and then I suddenly felt like a new person, like you often do if you you stop being in pain or you stop feeling sick. You you realise how amazing health is, (laughs) which you take for granted when you're healthy. So I could enjoy the pregnancy a lot more then. And I knew there was a potential this was going to be my only pregnancy because we'd had so much trouble becoming pregnant. So I tried to celebrate the moments. The delivery was a planned caesarean for medical purposes for me. Mia loves me telling the story of the day she was born, so maybe I'll tell you the story I tell her. Daddy drove mummy to the hospital, and one doctor put a needle in my back so that I couldn't feel anything. Then another doctor cut mummy's tummy open, put their hands in, and found your head pulled you out and you weren't very happy about this because you were all warm and cosy and comfy in there swimming around like a little fish and you liked listening to mummy and daddy talking to you and suddenly you were in this loud bright cold place and you didn't like it and so you said and even though we didn't like you were crying we loved hearing your voice and your opinion so early on and then the nurse dried you up and wrapped you and you were still wearing 
And then they put you in mummy's arms and mummy and daddy gave you a kiss and we said, it's okay, we're your mummy and daddy and you're okay. And then you fell asleep. <laughs> so that's the, the story of her birth that she loves to hear. When you first hear your baby cry, it's, it's relief that you didn't even know you were really worried that there was going to be a problem. And then they hold the baby up over the screen, you know, and I just thought relief and excitement and, yeah, it's just a great moment. Once Mia was born, the hospital stay was pretty good. I felt very good when I got to go home and for the first three months my mood was the best it had been in years. We were tired but very happy. My parents visited for three weeks from England which was really fun. We were going out for lunches with the baby in the pram. We were out for walks. We were off on Coogee Beach and exploring. So mood-wise, everything was great for the first three months. When Mia was three months old, I remember this very clearly. I was sitting with her in my lap, sitting cross-legged, and I noticed some blood on my thigh. And I thought, oh, have I cut myself? Is it the baby? And it, it didn't even occur to me that it would be my period. You, know, you haven't had one for nine months, and I was fully breastfeeding, and it just... Yeah, I'd kind of forgotten about them. <laughs> I'd hoped they were gone away forever. Uh, and then that brought a real shift in my mood. So I became very premenstrually, very irritated and struggled with the baby's normal baby behaviour and the sleep deprivation. She was waking up every two hours. So I had a month of her waking every two hours. Then the cycle kicked in again and I plummeted. So once the mood sort of dropped and I started having irritated feelings about Mia and my husband, that was then when I became very anxious. It was just this frustration and, and quite quick as well. I thought, why am I so affected by this when I've done this for four months and why am I so angry at her for not sleeping? It was, it was a very sudden change in how I felt. I knew that. I didn't want to be blaming my child. So that's when I first started to talk to my husband about how I was feeling. The anxiety was, I can't do this, or what if I can't do this? And being alone with Mia was my big fear. And so I started really not wanting to my, hus my husband to go to work, which is not feasible. <laughs> Really, well, and it, it was a shock for him because I think most people expect that mothers need a lot of support at the beginning and I was kind of out of the danger zone so it came out of nowhere for, for, for myself and him and so he was a bit shocked anxiety was a huge component but I couldn't tell you what I was anxious about I think my big fear was just reaching some kind of limit and not being able to do it and if there was no one there, what happens to this completely dependent baby? The big 
turning point, I suppose, came to a head when my husband was doing procedural work at the time and they were often very long. So he would go off to work on a Friday and I kind of wouldn't know when he was coming back. And that when you're anxious and you don't know how long you've got this baby alone for was really hard. And he was on call for the weekend. This unknown time, there could be one patient, there could be 10. Facing into that, I I just knew I couldn't do it. And I knew I was going to have to ask him to cancel. I know because I'm a doctor, but I'm sure most people can empathise that, you know, cancelling a patient's procedure is huge. But, you know, it was the reality I was in. And so that was when he said, well, look, uh, of course I will, but we can't keep going like this because there was just the two of us and he wasn't in a position to be home full time. So, yeah, that was when we knew we had to get some help. The Thursday I asked him to cancel his weekend and then the following Friday we saw the specialist. So my husband and I discussed this meeting a lot because it's very interesting to me that we went there both very clear that we needed help, that that I needed treatment for my postnatal anxiety and we needed more support because two people couldn't do this. And even though I was very clear in what I told her, I wasn't trying to hide it. I was actually going in very like, please give me some help. And so I told her everything. But what was interesting was the bond with Mia wasn't affected. So I was still breastfeeding. I still looked at her lovingly. So the psychiatrist saw that, did did an assessment and said, look, you're still clearly very attached to your baby. I actually think you're okay. And didn't even want to start me on medication. The psychiatrist spoke to my husband separately and said, you know, if you have any concerns over the weekend, call me, sort of thing. And we've talked a lot about why that was, both of us, because we both present very competent. (laughs) And I I think the other problem is it's hard for doctors to treat other doctors. Even though we turned up as patients, there's still a a barrier, I think, on, on some level. Being told I didn't need medication, of course, in some ways is a relief, But then we were also sort of sent home with no answer and no plan. It felt a bit sort of like you were abandoned. Being seen as more competent, you're smart enough, you'll work it out. But being smart has nothing to do with whether you get an anxiety disorder. Um, So, yeah, it it was disappointing. We came home from the appointment a bit shocked, I think. Um, And we had a terrible night. And I think I felt worse because in the week before, it was like, okay, we're going to see the specialist and we're going to get some help. So then not get help was like, well, I felt a bit floundery, I think. And so he rang and then was told to not leave me alone. I wasn't expressing any suicidal thoughts and I was not expressing any thoughts of harming the baby. I still don't understand to this day how she went from you don't need any help to don't leave her alone and so then he said well then we need to be admitted 
because I can't, no one can be some, with someone 24 hours. It was too much of a burden for him, too much responsibility. And he was struggling too at this point. He, you know, he was sleep deprived, and worrying about me and worrying about the baby. So the day after being told I didn't need any medication, we were planning an admission. I remember packing the bag and being like, well, what do you pack to go into a psychiatric hospital? I don't know. And what do I pack for my baby to go in? And I can't believe I'm even doing this. It was just surreal. By the Monday, I was admitted to hospital. As soon as we got there, I would say within 10 minutes, just a huge relief for both of us. And, and Mia as well. She picked up on, she became a lot more relaxed. So we were very fortunate that we were admitted to one of only two mother-baby units in Sydney, which meant that the baby could stay with the mother and also your husband or partner, whoever could come. So it was, you had your own little family room. So for the first 24 hours, you're on hourly suicide watch, which is a routine when they admit people, whether you are expressing thoughts or not. So every hour through the night, someone came and shone a light. Someone had to sign me in and out if I wanted to leave. And I think the other big, you know, I am an inpatient was queuing for the meds in the morning. So just like in the movies, they have the little hatch and you line up and you get your little plastic tub with your medication and it's just uh, the moments where it kind of, you know, hit you that, oh no, I am a psychiatric inpatient now. And I just thought, wow, it's, it's just somewhere I never thought I'd be, I suppose. And I just thought, well, okay, it's, this is real and something needs to change. I was admitted for five weeks in total. The program is excellent. In the first week is obviously all the assessments and getting you sleep is really like priority number one. So every morning you go for a walk at 9am, the mums and the babies. Then you have two group psychology sessions every day and then all food is taken care of. So it just sort of takes away a lot of the burdens and gives you time to really process what's happening. As part of the psychology sessions, you did an exercise where you had to draw a circle. And in the circle, you wrote down the names of emotions that were acceptable in your house growing up. And every single person in the room wrote happy in the middle of the circle and all the other emotions were on the outside. So anxiety, sadness, all those things were not accepted for every single person there growing up. And that was my crossroads within my crossroads. It was seeing everyone's circle and realising that is what united us. And that had to be part of why we were all there. Because if your only emotion you're allowed and is validated is happiness, then you suppress every other emotion. And then when it hits you, because anxiety was shameful, and made you weak and whatever other stories we'd all been told. So we had no tools to deal with it. That was really the turning point for me in terms of 
realizing how important emotional intelligence and emotion coaching was for myself. I knew I had to start again for me and obviously I had little Mia and I knew that in 30 years time she wouldn't be drawing that circle. It's important for parents out there to realize that our job is not to stop our children having feelings, feeling sad, feeling anxious, or even having tough experiences in life. Your job is not to prevent your child having a friend who doesn't like them anymore. Your job is to teach the child that no matter what feelings come, that they're normal, that you can handle them, and that there's a way through. I knew that I had to, you know, learn to manage my own emotions and I needed time and space to do that. And so I knew I couldn't go back to emergency medicine in hospitals. I couldn't have been away for her for 10 hours and then gone home and functioned. And then I just started thinking about what really lights me up, I suppose, and what my passion is. The research shows, you know, if you have a secure attachment to your primary caregiver, you do better academically, you do better socially, you do better in relationships, you have less divorce, you have less chronic illness. Then I, yeah, I found a coaching qualification with uh, the Jai Institute, which is it's an American institute. I, I really liked the, their sort of training and I've just completed that. And yeah, so now my hope is to support parents to support their children. Whilst at the time, obviously, no one wants to be admitted to a psychiatric unit and I will never forget packing that bag. It is absolutely the best thing. You know, I think it, you're more likely to struggle if you don't get the help because it made me realise how important emotion coaching and just, just our emotional world is. And that that moment where we all drew the circle showed me actually the key is there for our parents. You know, it's how our parents dealt with emotions is how we deal with it and that cycle. I would say I have changed everything <laughs> to ensure she is not drawing that circle. Even if Mia did get postnatal anxiety, which she still might, but she won't be drawing that circle. Thank you for listening to I'm at a Crossroad. If this episode has touched on issues you're struggling with and you feel like you need resources or support, go to beyondblue.org.au. Or for 24-hour free counselling in Australia, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and please look after yourself. I'm at a Crossroad is produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land by students from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. We would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. This episode was edited by Jonathan Pearson. Sound designed by Jonathan Pearson and Harry Hughes. Produced by Keegan Brown. Executive producers Tristan Black and Angela Chu.